right. Hello, everyone. So today I want to share with you some notes and thoughts that I had. I was able to speak with four different um, high school classes today, seniors in high school and economics here in Ventura. And uh, I was a real pleased to be able to do that. Kind of prompted me to say, you know, I want to share this information here. And if you have a high schooler you can share this with, I think it might be helpful. The three things I'm going to talk about are behavioral finance, credit, credit cards, and real estate. And uh, the first thing that I'll, that I'll mention is this is what I do for a living. For the last uh, 15 years, I've been in personal finance. So people pay me to help them make decisions with their money. And uh, I have an office in Ventura, and people will pay me to sit down and help them figure out if they're ready to retire or what choices they should make for helping their kids get into college, what are the tax implications, whether you're selling an asset, lots of decisions that come up in terms of financial stuff. People often want help. And when they get help, um, they make better decisions. So that's what I do for a living. And, and that's, that's how that works. So I, I think it's important for me to share that information to uh, validate what I'm, you know, and I, I have some experience with what I'm talking about. That's the planning side. The other side is in terms of investing and managing assets. So uh, people will have sometimes work in terms of retirement and wonder, what do I do with my money now that I'm retiring? Do I have enough to live off of? And so they only help with the investment management or they got a windfall of, of cash from an inheritance or some other source. They're saying, well, what do I do with this? It's here. How can I use it? And uh, we can help with investment management as well. So those are the two things I do every day. Um, and in terms of, you know, your 16, 17, 18 year old trying to understand the future of their life and how money matters, there's a lot of things that come into play. And what I'm going to start with is behavioral finance. It's all decisions. It's all decisions we have to make at some point. And what I'll, what I'll start with is the idea of, um, you know, here, here, here you are 16, 17, 18 years old, senior in high school, and you're wondering um, about a lot of things in your life. Imagine you walked out of the classroom and you picked up a $100 bill. You just found it on the floor. You say, this is amazing. Look at a $100 bill. How cool. You know, what, what are you going to spend that on? Now, keep in mind, you're 16, 17, 18 years old. What are you going to spend that money on? What are the things that are important to you? Why do you want to buy what you want to buy? Is it because it's important to you and you value it, something that your friends kind of enjoy and you think, you know, it might help by buying something that'll help you and your friend group. Uh, your parents want you to have something, so you buy it. What do you spend your money on and why is kind of the first part. Um, and think about what you might buy when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. Okay, so you have that on your mind. Now let's, let's take a framework and step back and go back 10 years. Same scenario. You're six, seven, eight years old. You find this money in the parking lot. I say, great, I get to buy something. What are you going to buy with that money when you're six, seven, eight years old? Think about that. Think about what you might buy. Now go ahead and, and analyze. Are the two things different from when you were six, seven, eight to when you're 16, 17, 18? I would suppose and assume that they're very different. And with all the students that I asked to today's classes, that was the case. It was very different for all of them in terms of what they want to, and what they would spend their discretionary found money on uh, with 16, 17, 18 versus six, seven, eight. Now, that's not very important in alone by itself, but that same theory is going to continue when they're 26, 27, 28. What they're going to want in their life is going to be very different than what they want right now. It's important to be thoughtful about your future self in terms of what you're going to want and what you're going to use your money on. And that's going to continue 37, 47, 50, and beyond. There's always going to be changes of what you're interested in. 
that behavioral finance and decisions of what you want to buy matters. And it matters. To, it's always good to be thoughtful of your future self in terms of saving for that. So that's number one. That's the first thought is that behavioral finance, what you want will change. Try and be saving for the future, not always living for today. And that's not an easy thing for uh, a young adult to understand, but it's important in terms of personal finance. So my big theme is know the rules of the game. If you know the rules of the game, you're going to play much, much better at the game of life. We'll start with credit in terms of that. So here we are. It's February. So February, credit cards work on a monthly basis. So February 1st to February 28th would be your statement cycle. Okay. When you get your credit card, one of the things that will say on the limit is your limit. That's the maximum amount you can use on the card. Let's just assume it's $1,000 for your first card. $1,000 limit. So as you get your card and you go use it, you say, hey, let's go to Starbucks. We'll get something to drink, something to eat. So you take a couple of friends to Starbucks. You use your card. You say, oh, here we go. First thing, $30 is now with a balance on that card. Limit still $1,000. you have spent $30. Cool. The month continues. Next day, you say, hey, let's go to Chipotle. You get a couple burritos, a couple friends, another $30. It's on the card. Now your balance is $60. The month continues. Let's just assume that through the month, you've spent $400 on the card. Now you have your balance is $400. Limit's still $1,000. It's March. You get your first statement. So what does your statement say? It's going to say balance $400, minimum payment due $10. So you say, okay, well, minimum payment due, I'll pay the minimum payment. And you pay $10. Let's. Let's assume you did that. You paid the $10. What is your balance going to be now? You owe 400. You pay 10. What's your balance left on the card? Simple math would say 390, but that's not the case. I would venture to say it's going to be close to 395. So you paid 10. Where'd that $5 go? Where'd it go? Well, it goes to, it's your, it's your interest. It's the cost of doing business is what Visa gets they get that $5. So if you if you continue in only paying the minimum payments, you're going to be paying for stuff long after you've actually consumed that cup of coffee from Starbucks or that burrito from Chipotle, long after you're going to continue having to pay for that. So rules of the game, understand them. Number one, never pay the minimum payment. Never do it. They're making money off of your back when you do it that way. Don't do it that way. The solution and the best way to do it is to pay it in full every month. Your balance is 400, pay 400. What's going to be left when you do that? Your balance at the end of the month is zero. What did they make off of you? Zero. That's the way that it has to go. That is knowing the rules of the game. Use your credit card, pay off the balance in full every month. And when you do that, you'll be in much better shape moving forward. They're making money not off of you. They're making it somewhere. Where are they making their money? If they're not making it off of you, where are they making their money? They're making money. It's a good business model. They're making money. Where are they making it? Well, they're making it off other people that are paying minimum payments, number one. But the main source where they're going to make their money is off of the swipe, the transaction fee. When you use your card at Starbucks and you, you end up buying that coffee, it's $3, let's say. You buy $3 coffee. Visa is vouching for you and running tab for you. And then they're going to go pay Starbucks, but they're not paying them three bucks. 
they're going to pay him like $2.91. Where does that $0.09 go? That $0.09 is going to Visa. That's what they made transaction fees for the swipe. It's a rough estimate. It's around 2 to 3%. But sometimes at small businesses, you'll see like that fee. If it's under $5, you have to pay $0.35. You know, that's because that's a transaction fee. They're trying to not eat into their margin for the small business, right? So let the business of the Visa and the MasterCard, the credit card companies, let them make money off of the swipe. Don't have them make money off of you for interest payments. Know the rules of the game. You'll play much, much better. Okay, that's first point. Second point with credit. Credit works. uh, There's a thing called the FICO score. You get a FICO score as you establish credit. And the FICO score, there's three bureaus, Transamerica, TransUnion, and Experian. They, those three bureaus have a score. It's generally from 350 to 850. The higher the score, the better. It's always important to pay your bill as agreed. Even if it has to be the minimum payment, pay your bill as agreed. But what I want to share with you is a huge tip that's not commonly known when you get your credit card. Your limit, again, in the assumptions, $1,000, let's say. Your balance should never, ever go above 50% of your limit. So in that case, never go above 500 bucks. If you do it that way, you're going to be establishing your credit better, building it higher, faster. When you do break that threshold of 50%, what happens is your credit score goes down a little bit. Not forever, but for a period of time, it goes down. The reason being you're overextending yourself potentially, and they don't want to keep giving you good credit with higher abilities to get good terms on future debt that you're going to take. So they want to make sure that you're being responsible. It's a risk assessment tool. So that's how that works. And in terms of credit, the things that matter most to get your credit score up are those two things. Pay as agreed every month, and then also manage your balance to limit ratio, and you're going to be in the best shape possible for establishing building credit. Now, length of time for how long you've had credit matters so that you're not going to jump right to an 800 score immediately. The mix of credit you've had, whether it's car uh, credit cards or car loan or home loan, those student loans, those things all uh, assist with your credit, and that matters, and it takes time. You know, so it takes takes time for that. Some people ask questions today in today's classes. They say, "Well, what if what if I only use like five dollars a month? Does that matter how much I use?" No, that's great. Just you don't have to use a lot. You can use it small. Just pay it off in full every month. Some people say, well, what if I don't use it for three, four, five months? Does that matter? Well, it does matter, actually. I think after six months, the ability, if you're not using it at all, you just put it in your dresser drawer, you're not going to be helping your credit much further beyond that. So so you want to use it a little bit if you're trying to establish and build credit. What I also share is you don't want to get a credit card until you're ready and able to pay it off in full every month. So in most for most people, that means when you have a job and you have some income, you have to be real careful. Okay. So the next thing I'll say is that life happens. You know, life happens. We kind of get excited about things or, you know, that, that maybe our roommate's not able to pay their portion of rent. Uh, maybe, you know, our car breaks down one month. The refrigerator also breaks at the same time. Things happen. Life is going to happen. There's surprises that happen for us all. But if you're in a position to uh, deal with those, um, it's better to not have to put it on your credit card um, if you can't pay it off every month. So the second the second rule of the game is to have a nice emergency fund. That's a pickle jar hidden up behind the fridge, you know, in the very back. 
If something happens, you have some money hidden, safe, saved somewhere, you can pay for stuff. And when you're younger, a young adult, the idea of having that be 200 to $500 is probably sufficient and enough. Now, keep in mind, that's an emergency fund for emergencies. So when your friend kind of calls you up and says, hey, this amazing thing came up. I got free place to stay in Palm Springs. We can go to Coachella. It's going to be amazing. Harry Styles is going to be there. Let's go to Coachella. Free housing. All you have to do is buy your ticket, 300 bucks, and food, another 100 bucks. You're in. Let's go. You know, it's great to do that stuff. But if you don't have, if you're going to break into your emergency savings to do that, your emergency fund, that's a bad idea. You can't YOLO yourself out of your emergency fund. That's not true emergency. That's a YOLO emergency. Don't do that, right? So uh, be, be real thoughtful of saving that emergency fund for true emergencies. But if you uh, have your emergency fund in place, you're paying off your credit card in full every month, and you have some savings, and you're going to use that savings or use some future income that you have and use that money to pay for that trip, then you're in good shape to do it. So uh, it's important to, to try and understand that and balance that out. And in terms of credit, it's all choices. It's all behavioral finance. And we talk about that, and, and I think it's important to just grasp that and understand those choices. They really, really do matter. Okay. Okay, so next, um, I'm going to jump into real estate. And I have a few examples of real estate um, that, I'm, that I'm really happy to share. When you look at Ventura, Ventura County, what's the average price for houses here in Ventura County? It's 2022. And the average prices that the four classes came up with today, which is pretty close, I think, was around 700000 $700,000 for a house in Ventura County today. So um, when you look at 2007, or I would say 2012, what was the average back in 2012, 10 years ago? Ventura County. I, I would assume it was closer to 400000 was the average. So we've seen a big jump over the last 10 years, increase-wise. Now, let's go back even further. What was the average price in 2007? So it was 2022, 700000 2012. 400,000. 2007 average price. I'm guessing and most people guess around 600,000 was the average price. So we saw a full cycle and things do work in cycles. That full cycle from 2007 to 2022 peak to I'm just I'm just going to say it peak to peak and and I'll get, I'll get more into that. I'm not prognosticating here, but peak to peak from then to now, we've seen I would say a full cycle. The peak the trough being 2012 around there, and then back up to the peak. So a full cycle, I, I do believe it works in cycles. And the next cycle, when will it be? Well, I don't know for sure, but I have a few theories I'll share with you. Um, so where is it going to be in 2028? Is it going to keep going up? Is it going to flatten out? Will it come back down? Well, I don't know for sure. But the way I look at it is I think it's important to understand wages, and then also home prices, annual wages, three to four times annual wages is sustainable home prices, in my opinion. So in 2012, when a home price was 400,000, assuming an annual household rate of 100,000, that's four times annual wages is the cost of the house. That's very sustainable. We look at currently say if annual, and I think it's a little higher, but dollars for a $700,000 house, you're looking at six times annual wages, somewhere around there. I think that's a little less sustainable. When we saw 2007, 600,000. 
dollars for a home and then a hundred thousand dollar annual annual wages somewhere around there more than six seven times annual wages it just wasn't sustainable so are we there again well, i don't know for sure but i think that's an important metric to look at um so uh, 2028 as i mentioned it could continue going up it could flatten out it could come down i have a sense and my general feeling is that over the next five years i think there will be a flattening out so uh, we'll see what happens and that's just a thought that's not advice but uh but it's a thought in the way that I've kind of look at things. So anyhow, in real estate, what I'm going to share with you next is some terms of, of a deal. So the deal that I'm going to share with you, um, we had um, a client buy a triplex. This was a while ago, and this is uh, unique to their situation. So this, again, isn't advice, but it's just a scenario that we saw play out. The, the cost was in 2012. It was $404,000 in Northern California triplex three two-bedroom one-bath units and each one paid at the time 1250 a month in rent so the monthly rent total in terms of income was two thousand three thousand seven hundred fifty dollars was the amount of income okay the mortgage was a loan of three hundred eighty five thousand and then the the payment was two thousand seven hundred fifty dollars a month in the mortgage bill Principal interest taxes insurance. So the positive cash flow, $1,000 a month. So if you're with me on this, and whiteboard would be a little easier to explain, but if you're with me on this, you see $1,000 a month interest in 2012 is a good, good deal. But to think about the risk involved, if what happens if the renters, the three renters, file on hard times and couldn't pay the rent? Who had to pay that $2,750? The landowner, the owner, right? What happens when there's an issue in the driveway with the pipe and you need to replace the pipe? Who pays for that? The owner. The roof goes bad. The owner has to pay. So there's risk and exposure. It's not just easy, free cash flow. You have to be willing to deal with those things. Um, but in this case, this was 2012 and it's been 10 years now. And how has that asset performed over the last 10 years? And how in general with real estate, these cycles sometimes can be relied upon to few in the future to hopefully work out in a similar fashion. It doesn't always work this way, but over time, the property has appreciated in value. So 2012 was 400,000. What's the current value? 2022, well, it's estimated to be around $950,000. So a lot of appreciation of the home value. Rents now, they were 1250 per month back in 2012. Well, what happens to rents over time? Well, they inflation, things cost more. So rents now are around $1,450 a month. So we're looking at somewhere around $4,200 a month in terms of total income now from the three rentals. Look at the interest rates. Over the last 10 years, the initial loan amount was uh, $385, and it was 5.5% interest rate. So interest rates have gone down. There was a refinance. Now it's at 4%. So the payment's only 2,500. So now they're making over 1,700 a month in positive cash flow. So you see how that works out? In addition to that, the, the loan amount was 385 back then. It's currently 305. So the loan goes down in value. It's been a good asset in terms of all four of those things. The home has appreciated. 
rents and inflation of rents has gone up. The loan has been being paid down. Interest rates went down, refinance, get better terms on the loan, more cash flow. So you have to look at assets in a way where what goes up in value or pays you more in terms of income or you know, that's rather, that's the key focus. What I want to share with you that uh, on that is a book that I read when I was in high school. So talking to high schoolers, and this is a great book for uh, anyone graduating high school is rich dad, poor dad. It talks about how acquiring assets, minimizing liabilities, acquiring assets, minimizing liabilities. And the, the, you know, you look at things like a car, is that an asset or a liability? The reality is a liability it goes down in value. Um, and it, it, it doesn't pay you anything. You look at assets, things that will go up in value or will pay you along the way. So you want to acquire those. Um, all right. Well, that's just a few of the notes of what I shared in today's uh, communications with the high school students in the economics class, the seniors. Had a really good time. I really appreciated um, being asked to speak there. I'm happy to speak to kids about this stuff. I think it's so important. When I was growing up, you know, my parents, we had problems with money. And I think those problems that we had really propelled me to have much more of an interest in helping people with money and helping myself not make the mistakes that my family made. So anytime I get the chance to speak to high school kids, always happy to do it. Um, I do have a video I'm going to share as well. I made this video. When we talk about investing, um, I think this video really hits the nail on the head in terms of investing. So let me share this with you now. I'm going to put it on and then uh, and then we'll close it out after this video. The big issue with financial matters is procrastination. I want to highlight an example of what that looks like and how it plays out. Procrastination can hurt you financially. We're going to take a look at two brothers, Jason and John, the twins. Jason had a job in which he contributed $4,000 a year into his retirement account. It started at the age of 18 and he did this until age 26. We did it for eight years and then he stopped. Meanwhile, his twin brother John was busy in school. He became a doctor. And then at age 26 is when he started contributing $4,000 a year for his retirement. John continued this $4,000 a year for 40 years. In total, he put away $160,000 for his retirement. At the age of 65, whose retirement account do you think had more money? Was it Jason, who only contributed $32,000, or was it John, who contributed $160,000? Let's assume that they had a- So this is interesting, right? Um, you look at Jason. He started eight years earlier, uh, but then he stopped. And then, and then the other brother, uh, John, he, he started later, and he kept going. Now, this is interesting. I'm trying to use this example to highlight a few things. So let's see how it plays out. Jason only invested $32,000 compared to John's $160,000. But his money earned interest for eight years longer. That's Jason's. But it wasn't the amount of money that was invested. It was the time value of the money. Jason didn't procrastinate. And by investing sooner, his account was able to grow larger. All right. So that's what I wanted to share. You know, I think it, it does really showcase the idea of starting sooner. 
starting sooner helps. Obviously, that example is purely an example. 10% is not easy to get um, annually, and that's not, you know, as far as what, what we should always assume we're going to get. But uh, but keep in mind, starting sooner is a really big deal, really big deal. Well, I hope this helped. Um, I did want to share this. I enjoyed speaking to the students, as I mentioned, and uh, happy to do that. So if you know or have an economics uh, student, a high school student, and you want me to speak to their class, I'd be happy to do it. Just reach out. Um, Marinantha Financial is my business. Marinantha.com is my website. Michael at Marinantha.com. Or right here on Facebook, you can private message me. I'll get that there. So have a great day. All right. Be well.